You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, To Marry or Not to Marry, now looking at The Teachings of Jesus, Part 2. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Want to win a chance for a free tour of Israel? From March 1st to June 8th, Douglas's new website subscribers have the chance to be entered into a draw for a free tour. There are two ways to win. You can become a new website member or ask a friend to sign up. Then email confirmation of the subscriptions by replying to Douglas's newsletter. There's no limit to the number of entries. Sign up five friends, be entered five times. The winner will be announced in early July. Now here's today's teaching. This is the fourth installment on divorce and remarriage, the teaching of Jesus, part two. As we've learned in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Jesus is weighing in on the debate between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. And although he seems to side with the stricter view, the interpretation of the house of Shammai, he goes even further. At any rate, he clearly rejects the any-cause, no-fault divorce of Hillel. Understanding something of that debate is crucial knowledge if we're going to appreciate this interaction, what Jesus says to the Pharisees, what's going on. And as we mentioned last time, while Matthew mentions the exception, that is, divorce is not necessarily always wrong, Mark doesn't even mention that. He makes it sound like all divorce is wrong, which was totally fine writing into a Roman uh, environment, a Roman readership as he is, where divorce and separation are the same thing. But Matthew is written for those from the Jewish background. Yes, divorce is generally wrong, but sometimes, as we know, it's not the problem. It's actually the solution. So it's not enough for us today to just read Mark. We need to read Matthew. And as I argued last time, it's not enough just to read Matthew. We need to know a little bit of background if we're going to try to base doctrine on these passages. In fact, knowledge of the ancient world is essential if we're going to be great students of the Bible. That means accurate translation of the ancient languages. Who's going to do that? If not you, if not me, then we need to pay someone to do it. And indirectly, that's what you're doing when you buy a Bible, because Committees of experts have done these translations, and we're buying um, and benefiting from the fruit of their labor. Knowledge of the ancient world helps us to have a balanced and nuanced theology and helps us to appreciate the topography of Scripture. The Bible is not flat. It's not as though every passage is equally important, every sin is equal serious, each command is equally vital. It's not as though The scripture is flat. There are mountains. Some things stand out more than others. And Jesus made that very clear in passages like Matthew 22 near the end and Matthew 23 when he talked to the Pharisees. Well, hopefully we will not have a flat Bible interpretation, nor will this talk be flat. By the second century AD, the interpretation of Hillel was was dominant. Any cause divorce is the only kind of divorce practiced among the Jews. There's not any memory of what went on before, or at least very little. And for the church in the second century, the condensed language of those divorce passages is no longer intelligible. We are actually in a better position in some ways to appreciate uh, the debate, the background, what Jesus meant, 
than they were in the second, third century or even later. Because for them, they had relatively few documents. In our world, we have thousands. We have access to tens of thousands of books, actually millions. <laughs> I remember the first time when I was at Harvard Divinity School, where I did my master's, I wandered into the theological library and it was big. And I asked the librarian on the way out, how many books are there? And I believe she said a quarter million. Later, I was in the main library at Harvard and I asked, and they said, oh, that's 10 million. <laughs> so many books I once got lost in there. I mean, really lost. But uh, with a, a million books being printed every year, many of those are about religion. And all the discoveries of these ancient documents and discussions have been published. And since 1850, every major commentary on Matthew has actually covered the Shammai Hillel debate. So this isn't uh, new. But sadly, many scholars don't pass on that information to their church. Uh, most predictably follow the party line of their denomination if they have one. Let's not do that. You and I can study the ancient sources and be informed. I've already recommended the books of David and Stone Brewer. There are others, but if you want it, it's there. So we return now to the teaching of Jesus, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 31-32. It was said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. You know, I'm reminded in the Old Testament, the priest could marry. In fact, it was expected that the priest would marry, but I know the high priest wasn't supposed to marry a divorced woman. Maybe it was the other priests too. But marriage and remarriage and divorce were, were part of life, an unfortunate part of life. I think that's true also in the New Testament world. So what does Jesus mean when he says that if you divorce your wife, you make her an adulteress? Well, this is overstated. It's hyperbole. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's meant to grab our attention. Immorality was not the only ground for divorce in the Bible. Jesus is saying divorce must be justified, yet makes her commit adultery? How is that? The woman becomes defiled or adulterated? Well, that's assuming that she remarries without a valid divorce from her husband. No one is automatically an adulterer or an adulteress. But there's an assumption there that someone who remarries and without the valid divorce, that's an adulterous marriage. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily uh, you have to get out of that adulterous marriage. We'll talk about that later on. But the language of Matthew is shocking. Uh, and it's not as condensed as Mark, but it's still very strong. And by the way, Matthew 5, if you took it literally, would directly contradict Deuteronomy 24, the passage on divorce and the marriage certificate, which permitted remarriage after divorce. It assumed remarriage after divorce. Well, I'm not saying that we should not take Matthew 5 seriously. We should. But that doesn't mean necessarily that we have to take it literally. Does that make you uncomfortable? I think many Christians are uncomfortable when someone says, well, we don't take that passage literally because it sounds like we're picking and choosing. And yet the Bible is written with all kinds of literary conventions. And one of those is hyperbole. 
hyperbole is overstatement or effect. It's common in Semitic speech, that is the, the languages of uh, Hebrew and Arabic and others, and it's common throughout the Bible. And there are many phrases that we've probably already accommodated ourselves to that are non-literal, they're hyperbolic, we may not realize it, but one obvious one in the New Testament is when Jesus says we should hate our father and mother. I don't know anyone who takes that literally. We, that's Luke 14, 25. Now we get clarification with, from Luke 16, 13. When you have two masters, you hate one, you love the other. That clarifies it very well. But still, it's hyperbolic language. Jesus says that if you believe, everything is possible. Obviously, not everything's possible. Just because I believe it doesn't mean I can jump out the window and fly. Uh, is Paul telling us that we can actually speak in the languages of angels? I don't think so, any more than we can literally move mountains. No mountain or mountain range has ever been moved by prayer, as far as I know. And this section of Matthew 5 is full of hyperbole. I read verses 31 and 32. But verse 28, Jesus says, lust is adultery in the heart. In verse 29, pluck out your eye. Verse 30, lop off your hand. Verse 32, remarriage is adultery. We've got to be very careful. We say, oh, that's figurative, that's figurative, that's figurative. Oh, that's literal. I mean, what's your method? Elsewhere in Matthew, there are many other examples. In 6.3, left hand shouldn't know what right hand is doing. Well, I think we know what he means. We need to be discreet, and, and we need to, it has to do with motive and attention. It, it's not that we need to wear a glove in our left hand or our right hand, so the opposite hand is unaware. I mean, that would be silly. The plank or the speck in the eye, 7-5. The camel going through the needle in 1924. Uh, Jesus tells the Pharisees they swallow a camel after straining out the gnat in 23-24. Do the Pharisees swallow a camel? Well, yeah, they swallow a theological camel. <laughs> but it's not a literal camel. It's not literal swallowing, right? Usually, most people have a sense of what's literal and what's not. The problem is, when you yank a single verse out of its context and you exalt it somehow to such a high position that the rules of normal interpretation no longer apply, you don't have to use your common sense anymore. What I'm saying is that interpreting this section of Matthew 5, which contains a divorce text, interpreting it figuratively is well-precedented and exemplified throughout Matthew. Non-literal interpretations don't necessarily weaken the force of Scripture or make it impossible to figure out what it means. And I think that's true with marriage and divorce and remarriage. I mean, Jesus' teaching is pretty shocking. I mean, he teaches monogamy. Uh, divorce is not compulsory in the case of adultery. It could be warranted, but it doesn't mean you should do it. You're not commanded to. Uh, the rabbis were wrong on that. Marriage itself is not compulsory, because for some, the path of singleness, lifelong singleness, is better. Paul says it's a gift, 1 Corinthians 7.7. 7. Sadly, very few churches today teach that celibacy is the best way for those who have the gift, but it's in the Bible. Jesus teaches, he implies, that infertility is not a leg legitimate ground for divorce, because the grounds for divorce in God's Word, material and uh, emotional neglect, uh, unfaithfulness, do not include infertility. 
yet in the first century, people would divorce their wives if they didn't have offspring. Jesus is saying that divorce for any matter, the no-fault divorce, is invalid. That would be a shocker. And that would mean that remarriage after such a divorce is adulterous. It's wrong. I don't know how you can undo it, but it's, it's wrong. Marriage, teaches Jesus, is to be lifelong. It's against God's will to break up a marriage. So if you're the cause of the breakup, you've sinned. Now, it may be that two people are the cause of the breakup. Usually there's sin on both sides, but one would be primarily responsible. But we're not to break up a marriage. We're to work at it. Casual attitude is wrong. Admittedly, it doesn't always work. Sometimes the spouse is hard-hearted and there's no way to save it. And in that case, divorce makes sense. It's a solution, but it should never be embraced too quickly um, as a, an escape from problems. Okay, so to be even more clear, what is Jesus saying and what is he not saying? I'd like to talk about that a bit before we wrap up this talk. What is Jesus not saying? He's not saying all divorce is wrong. Jesus doesn't forbid divorce, but he insists that there have to be valid grounds. He does not renounce the grounds for divorce of the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, the grounds that were agreed upon by Jews of his day that were taught in the Old Testament, he never explicitly affirms nor denies those grounds. He doesn't teach that remarriage is wrong. Uh, you know, it developed in the church in the second century and later that, yeah, you could remarry even if you're a widow or widower, but maybe it's better if you don't. The, the church became stricter and stricter every century. It didn't really help. I don't mean they were stricter in their commitment to God. I mean, they were stricter in their observance of human regulations. New Testament scholar Craig Keener says, if the exception and he speaks of the exception of Matthew 5 and 19. If it permits divorce, the average first century Jewish reader would assume that it permitted remarriage, unless explicitly informed otherwise, because part of the very nature of the divorce document, well, it was to free the wife to remarry. Keener's making a good point, because the divorce document ends with words like, well, you are free to marry whoever you want. Jesus is not saying remarriage is wrong. He's not saying that divorced persons are somehow mystically still bound to their ex-spouse until that person dies. If you're divorced, you're not bound to your spouse. Uh, think about that. We covered that in the first installment. He's not saying that those remarried without proper grounds must return to the previous spouse. Doesn't tell the Samaritan woman, you need to go back to husband number five or three or one. Two wrongs don't make a right. Breaking up a marriage, a remarriage, even if it's based on the any cause divorce, that is, it's, it's not biblically warranted. Breaking up that marriage, requiring someone to return to his or her original spouse, that's not, that's not the way forward. In the Old Testament, that was forbidden, Deuteronomy 24.4. So we don't, we don't break up a marriage that was entered inappropriately um, and then try to go back to the first marriage or stay single for life. Jesus does not say that we should disfellowship the divorcee or to glare at them disapprovingly. Okay. These are what, that's what he's not saying. What is he saying? Well, 
Divorce for just any reason, for any cause, that's invalid. The liberal divorce of the House of Hillel, invalid. Remarriage after that, that that's adulterous. You're breaking God's will. He is saying that we must respect God's original plan. Monogamy, celibacy, marital fidelity, and even if a divorce is justified, we should be slow in carrying it out. And we have the best example is of God himself. Before he divorces the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, he takes time. He pleads. He really tries. You remember we talked about that earlier, Jeremiah 3.8 or Ezekiel 16, for example. And last, Jesus is saying that marriage is meant to be lifelong. It's against God's will to break up a marriage. So don't do it. Work at your marriage. In conclusion, there are some things in the Bible we don't understand without background information or the benefit of careful study. You know, and even then, there are some things that the Bible simply doesn't give us enough to work with to understand what, what does 1 Corinthians 15, 29 mean? That's the baptism for the dead, for example. But there are many passages like that that we just have to say we don't know. The ancient dispute was over whether any cause divorce was legitimate or not, whether grounds were necessary as stipulated in the Torah. That was the dispute. Could you just divorce and start over, or did there have to be crowns? And last, Jesus' teaching turned popular teaching on divorce and remarriage on its head, and not because he was forbidding divorce or remarriage, but because most religious leaders had drifted far from God's holy standards, and Jesus challenged them, and he challenges us to do what's right, to do what's holy. Next, we'll be looking at Paul on divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll be leaving the Jewish world and entering the Greco-Roman world, where things are very different indeed. We hope you enjoyed Douglas' series on To Marry or Not to Marry. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.